Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the National Writers Series podcast. I'm Carl Clockers, the communication manager for the NWS. And as you can probably tell already, we're doing something a little bit different this week. Since this week we're welcoming best-selling author Megan Miranda to the National Writers Series, we thought we'd look back to last year when she kindly joined us as the guest host for another author, Ruth Ware. Ruth and Megan joined us last September, Ruth coming to us live via Zoom from her home in the UK, to discuss Ruth's newest book, One by One. And over the course of the conversation, we cover a lot of the things that uh, might actually come up this week, too. Uh, we talked about how technology can be used in suspense novels, how writers work their way into a new story, the books and movies that actually scare these two suspense novelists, and also what it's like transitioning from young adult writing into things like crime novels and whodunits. So all of that as we get ready to talk with Megan this week about her newest novel, Such a Quiet Place. That conversation is this Thursday night, it's a virtual event via Zoom. We're returning to live events very soon. Uh, but until then, we're hanging on Zoom for just a few more weeks. So if you haven't registered yet, it's free. You can go on our site at nationalwriterseries.org and sign up to join us on Thursday night. Now, with that said, here we go. Take a listen. Here's Megan Miranda at the National Writers Series in conversation with Ruth Ware. I wanted to start by saying one of the things I love about your books is their ability to just transport you. Um, and not only the ability to transport you into these twisty, surprising stories and these really interesting, fully developed casts, but also to a place um, from, you know, house in the woods and in a dark, dark woods to the cruise ship in Women in Cabin 10. Um, and now we're in the French Alps. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the story. Um, and you know, for me, I was reading this in the heat of North Carolina summer and I was completely transported. Like I was cold just reading it, it's such a vivid setting. So I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about the story first. Oh, perfect. Well, I feel that should be my new marketing hook, you know, literary air conditioning. It will cool you right down. <laughs> Yeah, so One by One is set um, in a luxurious chalet in the French Alps in this super exclusive resort called Saint Antoine, which is entirely fictional, but people who know the Alps well um, will probably realise that it bears a few similarities to the resort Val d'Isère, which I know quite well. Um, it's my first novel that I've ever written with two narrators. Um, which felt like a, a big kind of, um, yeah, big change for me. It was something I kind of took a while to get used to. Um, but the first narrator is Erin and she's like the chalet hostess. So she's in charge of making everybody comfortable along with her co-worker, Danny, the chef. Um, and the other narrator is Liz, who is the secretary to this company, Snoop, who have taken over the chalet for a corporate retreat. And you find out very quickly that Snoop is there because they've been offered this enormous buyout offer, which has the potential to make the shareholders millionaires. But the company's completely split and half the shareholders want to accept the buyout offer and the other half of them want to reject it and retain control of the company. And Liz is caught in the middle because she was secretary at the firm way back when it started and has this tiny 2% shareholding, which has ended up in the position of having a casting vote so they're all locked up together in the chalet and 
poor Liz is under enormous pressure from all sides and Erin is looking at this company and sort of thinking that they're all you know entitled kind of <laughs> nightmare guests and they go out for what's supposed to be this day of kind of R&R in the snow um, and one of the founders and CEOs goes missing in the snow and while they're trying to figure out what's happened and whether it's an accident or if she's just got lost an avalanche descends on the chalet so basically things go from bad to worse and now they're all shut up together and they can't get away and obviously people start dying <laughs> yes i mean i just you know there are so many layers of tension in this story because it starts with a very tense premise in and of itself that there's this corporate retreat and two people have very opposing views of how things should go forward and then there's an avalanche and you know then there's the danger keeps closing in so it was just absolutely brilliant. Um, I wondered if you would share um, a bit of the book, a small reading, if you oh, have. I would love to. I'll do a really, really quick one. Um, and it's actually, normally when I read, I read from the beginning, but I'm going to read a tiny bit from quite a long way through the novel. Um, so this is one of Lizzie's sections. Um, and you'll, you'll see which part it is when I stop. I am upstairs in my room changing out of my skiing clothes when it happens. At first it's just a noise and then I feel the ground begin to shake like an earthquake. I turn to the window. I see what looks like a wall of snow coming down the valley towards us, but not a wall. That implies something solid. This is something else, a boiling mass that is air and ice and earth all rolled into one. I scream. I do the only thing I can, even though it's stupid. I fall to my knees with my arms over my head, as if that pathetic gesture might protect me. I stay there, shaking, for a long time, before I dare to get up, my legs trembling. Did it miss us? Did it stop? So obviously that's the point where the avalanche hits. <laughs> Oh, it's such a great moment. Thank you so much. So I know you mentioned this app and I would love to talk with you more about this because when I started reading, I actually Googled to see if it was a real thing because it feels like a real app, definitely. And I'm fascinated by how it came about you could tell us also what it is for those of us who haven't read it. And also, you know, I just loved how you used it structurally as well. Um, you know, not just throughout the plot, but even to, to begin each chapter heading. It was really, really cool. So could you tell us about Snoop? Well, so creating Snoop was probably the most fun I had out of the whole book. So I knew that I wanted to write a book about a corporate retreat. That was kind of the seed of the inspiration because I'd done books about, you know, romantic love and relationships and friendships and families and all the kind of toxic dynamics that can build up in those situations. And I realized that the one relationship that I hadn't ever really looked at was the relationship that we have with our colleagues, which, you know, for most of us is a pretty formative one, not for writers who work at home, obviously, like we, <laughs> we have that with our cats. But, you know, I spent most of my life working in an office in a day job and those people became my friends and they were my support. And, you know, but anybody who has ever had a bad boss will tell you that it can also be an incredibly destructive relationship so I was I knew that I wanted to write a book that explored both sides of that so I decided I was going to write a book about a corporate retreat and I knew that I wanted to set it at a ski resort because I love skiing and it felt like a really atmospheric place to set a lost a locked room mystery um, 
But then I was stuck with thinking, well, what kind of company would have the resources to go to such a luxurious place for their, for their corporate retreat? And I thought a bit about finance and kind of hedge funds and investment firms, but I wasn't super interested in those as companies and I don't know very much about that world. And then I thought, I reckon a tech company would do it, like a dot-com startup who had a lot of money and was used to splashing it around. So I thought, okay, my company is going to be an app. At which point, obviously, I had to invent an app, which turned out to be really quite hard. So I sat down and this took about a week or more. And I kept having these what I thought were brilliant ideas for apps. And then, of course, exactly as you did, I would Google and discover unfortunately this was already a real app so that wouldn't do um, and I knew that this company was going to be pretty vile so I didn't want it to bear any resemblance to a real one just in case I got sued um, and eventually I came up with this idea for an app a music app which I thought would be kind of cool because it like people's musical taste gives you lots of insights into who they are um, and the premise of Snoop is that you take your Spotify or your Apple Music or whatever you listen to and you hook it up to this app and it makes your listening public. Um, so anybody can log in and hear what you are listening to, like beat for beat in real time. But the quid pro quo is that you can then snoop on all of the other users who might be your best friend or your boyfriend or you know lady gaga or beyonce or whoever is on there and has chosen to kind of to to identify themselves on the app um and snoop advertises itself as voyeurism for your ears and i love that kind of that trade-off that we all make in the 21st century between entertainment and convenience but also privacy and that's something that snoop are wrestling with and is kind of discussed in the book <laughs> Yeah, I was actually, as you were just speaking, it reminded me of this, I feel like there's a little bit of a common thread in several of your recent books about technology, where the turn of the key is a smart house that, I mean, it's it's very convenient, but there's it turns very unsettling as well. And so were you kind of thinking about the pros and cons of technology as you were writing? Is that like a theme you're interested in exploring as well? I think it's really interesting to think about what we give up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess I just come out of writing The Turn of the Key. So I was already kind of in that headspace of sort of thinking about the kind of the, the Faustian bargain that we make with technology. Um, and, you know, it, it's like they always say, if you're not paying for a piece of software, you are paying for it. You're just paying for it in information instead of in money. And so many of the apps that we're all addicted to are completely free. And what they're trading in is the information that we're giving them. And on the one hand, we love it. You know, we love the when we Google restaurants, Google throws up ones that are close to us and doesn't, you know, bother telling us that something in, you know, Lewis, Delaware is amazing when we live in Lewis, Sussex, in my case. Um, we know, you know, we rely on that because otherwise search engines would be unusable. But we also feel deeply creeped out when we walk into a store and then 10 minutes later, we're getting adverts for it on our phones. So we're still, you know, as consumers, we're still figuring out how we feel about that. And the app companies are grappling with it too. You know, you see Facebook constantly trying to make itself look less creepy and less stalkery because they're aware that people feel weird about that. So anything that is in flux and that people are uncomfortable about is, I think, you know, 
inherently interesting to us as crime writers. Definitely. And I love how, you know, at this, you, you alternate narrators chapter by chapter, and at the start of each kind of say, you know, who they're snooping on sometimes, but also there's that flip side that someone is snooping on them, can be snooping on them as well, or listening to what they're listening to. So it's really interesting. Um, and I actually love to talk about the narrators some more as well, because, you know, there's this fascinating cast of characters and I'm really interested in how you came about choosing the narrators for it, because for me as a reader, it was such a great way to see things from both the inside and the outside, because you have somebody who works at the chalet and somebody who is a part of the dynamics, although she's a little bit in the middle of things. And then as the avalanche comes, I feel like those lines get blurred even more between the staff and the visitors. So were those things you were thinking about um, when you were writing and did that play into how you chose who would narrate it? Well originally when I started writing I wrote it from Erin's point of view, the chalet hostess, and I picked her because I, I wanted an outside perspective on this company because Snoop thinks that they're you know incredibly cool and incredibly hip and that you know the founders are super pleased with themselves and I wanted someone who wasn't part of that world to kind of be looking at it and going this dynamic is really screwed up and Snoop are not good employers you know that's really important to say from the outset and I one of the things that I stumbled on when I was researching the book was the way that tech startups in particular can kind of go from naught to 60 in you know a year if that and someone who has no experience of people management can suddenly find themselves in charge of a staff of you know 10 20 50 people with all of the kind of the headaches that that in, you know comes with and a good CEO will educate themselves as to what makes a good employer or hire people who take care of that and unfortunately the people at Snoop are not interested in that side of things so they've kind of allowed lots of toxic practices to build up in their company and so I wanted someone who wasn't part of that dynamic to be kind of looking at it from the outside and sort of see them for who they were but I got about 30,000 words into the book and something just wasn't working and I sent it to my agent and she read it and agreed with me that it wasn't working which was not the reaction that I wanted um but you know because she's a good agent she was completely honest about it and I went back to the drawing board and tried to figure out what the missing ingredient was and I realized it was because she was too much of an outsider and she was having to kind of listen at doors and overhear conversations in a way that was just it wasn't really plausible because it wasn't in her character to do that you know she's not the kind of person who would snoop on people um oh, i just realized i made a pun um <laughs> and so i decided i needed another narrator and it needed to be someone who knew more about the inner workings of snoop um but i guess i'm sort of intrinsically interested in outsiders and people who are kind of square pegs in round holes so i picked someone who is an insider at Snoop. She's been there from day one, although she's since resigned for reasons you don't immediately find out. Um, but she's also an outsider. You know, she's never really fitted in to this corporate culture. She's not super well off in the way that most of the other employees are. 
she's you know she's quite socially anxious so she never feels that she's properly dressed or properly made up or the kind of person who should be in the room um and yeah that was having the two of them together was huge fun and at the beginning it enabled me to give much more information about snoop and it's in a workings without having to kind of resort to these sort of slightly shoehorny methods and as the book went on I, I had so much fun showing the same events show you know from two perspectives and so you would get you know something happening and Erin would observe it and then Liz would come in with a bit more knowledge about what was actually going on and it was just fun saying to you know to the reader you think this is what has happening but actually this is what's happening and that was yeah I, that was really enjoyable to write. Yeah and it was you know it's it as you were just answering that, I mean, I feel like that's something I think about a lot as well as how you can have, you know, an event happens and people have completely different perspectives on it and, you know, depending on your knowledge and your own experiences. So it was really so effective to read it that way, to be like, oh, this is, oh, wait, no, maybe this is the different perspective with this information. Um, so kind of on that same topic of what information you give, I was so, I really, really enjoyed and was fascinated by the start of the book, where you start with these corporate bios for everyone in Snoop, and they are hilarious and so spot on. And then right after that, you kind of contrast it with this article that says, that basically is talking about this accident and that a number of people end up dead and there's this you know they're very different in tone it's this juxtaposition and it just both of those set the scene so well because as a reader i felt like i was almost walking in with them and i knew something was coming and i'm like be careful you don't know what's coming um so i was wondered kind of how you decide what information to give um up front or how you come up with those decisions and also those corporate bios did you kind of know those from the start or did that kind of develop after you got to know the characters because i just i love them so much oh i had such fun writing those bios as anybody who reads them can probably tell um so the book always began with the newspaper article so there's a newspaper article right at the beginning actually it's from the an imaginary article from the bbc news website saying that there's been an avalanche and that four people are dead, but you don't know which four. Um, and that was in the book right from the beginning. And that was because I knew that the first death wasn't going to occur for a little while. And I sort of feel a responsibility as a crime writer to kind of to say to people, you know, don't worry, the crime's coming. There's definitely going to be a murder. Because <laughs> otherwise, you know, I, I mean, I think people now know what to expect from my books. But definitely, you know, when, when, the, when the peril is a little way off, you want to sort of signal to people that bad stuff is around the corner. Um, so that was in there right from the, right from the start. And it I deliberately gave the number because I loved the idea of sort of having this quota and kind of playing with people's expectations of who might be in it and how many we've got to go until the quota's filled up. Um, hence the title that people are being picked off one by one. Um, but the big challenge that I had when I was writing the book was because it's a locked room mystery and because of the nature of the plot, all the guests descend right at the beginning. So you have a, a brief period where you 
get to meet Erin and Danny, who are the two um, chalet staff. And then all the members of Snoop, 10 of them, descend at the same time. And it was quite disorientating to write. So I can imagine it would be even more disorientating to read. And I was trying to sort of give the reader the information that they needed without sort of being too info dumpy and give them tools to remember people without being too clunky. And in the end, I thought, I think I, I need a character list, um, which is something that I love about, you know, historical novels when they have a long list at the beginning and you can sort of flick back and be like, oh, this is their place in the family tree. But just a bald list of names never really works for me as a reader. I don't have a peg to hang those people on and it doesn't mean very much. Um, so I, I thought I would do a kind of a found document to match the BBC News article. Um, and I knew straight away that I wanted to take it off the Snoop website. And one of the things that as a writer I'm fascinated by is companies that have a really strong corporate voice. And you know the way there's some some it's like such a trend at the moment that you'll see it on like websites or labels even sometimes and they'll have this kind of really sort of folksy voice and sometimes it'll even extend to like the you know the ingredients and it'll be like oh you know no nasties and it'll be like just a little and or you know alternatively it'll be very techy and kind of and I knew somehow that Snoop would be a company that would have a really annoying corporate voice <laughs> So I, I, yeah, their, their biogs are really irritating and hopefully it tells you everything that you need to know about them. And it also tells you which members of staff don't quite fit in because there's a few who are just sort of like, yes, Carl went to law school and graduated with honours, you know, and he just, he doesn't fit in with the kind of the sort of tech bros tone. Um, so yes, I had fun writing those. <laughs> well, I had a lot of fun reading them. So thank you for that. No, it was so enjoyable. And I could, I, as, as I was reading the star, I could just immediately, I knew so much about them just from that bio even. I felt like I could connect with their personalities. So it was really, really cool. Um, so you actually mentioned uh, Locked Room Mysteries, which was actually something I was gonna ask you for my next question. Because as I was reading, I felt, it felt very timely to be reading this right now, even, you know, we're not traveling, but, but this sense that, you know, our, our worlds, the boundaries of our day-to-day -day worlds have been, pulling in a little bit closer um, over the last six months. And so I, I love this locked room mystery. And I know this is something I love about so many of your books you have, you know, the locked room of the party of the bachelorette party in the woods and a locked, you know, you're basically, you're cast as a cruise ship in A Woman in Cabin 10. So um, I was wondering kind of what drew you to locked room mysteries. Um, if you kind of like having that constraint, those boundaries to have to work within. I don't know. I keep coming back to it as a theme. And on the one hand, I'm kind of making life deliberately hard for myself because when you have a locked room mystery, you're right, you do have constraints. You can't, you know, you can't solve things by having experts dropped in and, you know, you don't have a convenient detective to figure stuff out. So you really, you really give your characters a tough time in resolving the mystery. Um, I think as a writer, it makes me more creative and it makes me dig down into the characters much more because when you only have a really small finite cast of characters you have to get to know them really well um and also i think specifically as a crime writer there's something about 
kind of friction and conflict between characters that keeps me turning the pages when I'm reading and it's fun to write and as an introvert the quickest way I know of creating kind of tension and conflict is to put lots of people into an uncomfortable situation together and then tell them that they can't get away you know that's the one thing that's guaranteed to make me start sweating if I'm in a situation where I can't just call a cab and flee and, and get away so it's a I guess it's a kind of it's an easy way to sort of up the up the tension and up the friction but it is it was weird I will I wrote this book like last year and finished it I guess it would have been sort of around November December time so you know coronavirus was not even a, a blink in the eye at that point but I, I edited quite a lot of it under lockdown and that was a weird experience because it is it's very much that sort of your world is getting smaller and smaller and you're inhabiting this kind of claustrophobic scenario so I'm quite glad that it's coming out now when we're not under quite such strict lockdown conditions. <laughs> so since you were editing it during that time, did you feel like it was giving you a different type of insight because of like into isolation? Did it affect, did it change anything as you were writing? I don't know. I mean, I didn't, I didn't change anything in the book because of it, but I definitely felt more sympathy for my characters. <laughs> <laughs> I think the key thing is though that, um, yeah, I was lucky that I was locked down with my family, who I adore, and, you know, was generally having a pretty good time. But as Liz says in the book, you know, the, where they're stuck is this amazing location. It's incredibly beautiful. The chalet's really luxurious. Everything's perfect apart from the people that she is stuck with. So she's very much, you know, of the Jean-Paul Sartre, hell is other people kind of. <laughs> and I did get to thinking about that as I was writing the book. I was thinking about, you know, all the people who are locked down with family that they can't stand or friends that they've had an argument with. And it, it definitely made me very sympathetic to everybody who was having a difficult lockdown. Yes, definitely. And I think, you know, the, I love when settings are, you know, they are, they're these beautiful settings, but it really does come down to your experiences at the setting or the people that you're with at these settings. And I think that's also something I can see now looking back as like thematically in several of your books, they are these, you know, really idealistic or really nice places to visit. And then you know, it doesn't mean they're going to be a great place. It's a bit wrong, exactly. Well, I think, you know, that's one of the things that I take inspiration from Agatha Christie for, because she does that so well, you know, that kind of sense of stifled luxury, where she leads you into what should be the perfect kind of, you know, scenario of the luxurious Orient Express or a beautiful Dahabir on the Nile or, you know, an exclusive island hotel. And then she kind of picks and picks and picks at the surface and reveals this kind of, you know, seething mass of emotion and, and darkness beneath. <laughs> Yes. And that's actually, I, I was going to ask you another question about Agatha Christie. This is perfect time. So um, I know your books have in the past been compared to the great Agatha Christie and one by one is, it does feel very modern, but there is obviously kind of a, a feel to, and then there were none. So is this something you took inspiration from as well in developing this idea or in several of your books? Well, the Christie comparison kind of surprised me initially and in that I wrote in a dark dark wood without having sort of you know wasn't really consciously thinking about influences but if I was it was probably much more the sort of you know 
Wes Craven kind of, you know, scream and, and killer in the woods kind of idea. But as soon as it came out, people started to say, oh, you know, it's like a modern day Agatha Christie. And I could absolutely see why, because I think I do try to create a puzzle in the same way that Christie does and to, to have that kind of click moment of the pieces slotting in. Um, so the woman in cabin 10 was me kind of tipping my hat to Christie more consciously, I guess, because, you know, I was very grateful to her for having provided a template for, you know, the perfect crime novel and for me riffing off that in, in a dark, dark wood. And so with the woman in cabin 10, I sort of tried to pay homage to her a bit more obviously in a way. And then <coughs> I kind of strayed away a little bit. Um, the Lion Game is a very different book. It's, you know, much more about friendship and, and school. Um, the Death of Mrs. Westaway is probably my thank you to Daphne du Maurier, who I also love and is a stone cold psychological thriller writer. Um, the Turn of the Key is obviously a debt of inspiration to Henry James. Um, and One by One is, yeah, it's probably me coming full circle and coming back to my Christie-ish roots. And yeah, definitely. And then there were none was an inspiration um in fact if Christie hadn't stolen that title I probably would have wanted to have it um but it's in no way a rewrite I've seen sort of some suggestions on social media that it that it is and it, it's not oh, I don't want to mislead anyone yeah. in that respect it doesn't have the same themes or the same premise but yeah yeah so I'm going to transition to like my what I call my nosy writer question so you know we talked about setting and character and story. And so I would love to know kind of where you start, where, what's your way into a story? It changes every single time. And every time I try to start a book, I have this feeling that I'm never going to be able to do it and that I've forgotten how and that I can't remember how it, you know, how it all came together last time. But for me, I think it's just about finding a thread that I'm interested in pulling on a little bit, you know, and that could be a new story or it could be a, a dilemma that I'm not sure how I would handle or an intriguing situation that I want to find out how it plays out. And ultimately I think I write to satisfy my own curiosity about what my characters are going to do and how they're going to handle this and how this is going to play out. So if I feel curious about a situation or worried about a situation or concerned or frightened, I think that's a good sign that it's going to be an interesting plot. But I want to turn it back on you and ask you how you do it, because I'm at the point where I need to start thinking about my next book. So I'm just going to take shameless. <laughs> well, it's funny you said like it does change book to book for me. I think it's the same where right? I'll think, oh, this is my process and this is how I work. And then the next book, like that is not at all the process. Out the window. <laughs> Yeah, and every time I'm like, how, how did I get to this point where everything comes together? Like when you're starting from scratch again, but I usually start with character first or an idea for a character, although sometimes it is setting um, as well. And so it is different book to book, kind of like you were mentioning. And I feel like I love asking different writers the processes because I think everyone has such a different process. And I think what I didn't realize at first was that even my own process would shift book to book to book um, as well. So making this specific about psychological suspense and thrillers, how do you kind of 
keep that tension going and keep all those threads together. Because, um, you know, as I was reading, I had cast my suspicions on pretty much everyone at Good. one point in time. <laughs> So do you, and I saw this was a question that a few people had asked as well um, in the comments. So I'm going to combine them all here. Um, do you know who done it at the start? I do. Yeah, that's about the only thing that I do know. So I'm not a big plotter. And I always wish that I had like a sort of fancy method to talk about because lots of writers do and they, you know, they have like whiteboards and index cards and, you know, outlined to the nth degree. And I, I don't do any of that, which always makes me feel a little bit like an amateur. I just sort of, you know, sit down and open a Word document. Um, but the one thing that I do usually know before I start writing the first sentence is who did it and why. And I usually have a pretty good idea about the setting and the characters. I try to kind of let that marinate for a while before I start actually writing. Um, and I think it's because for me, the perfect crime novel is one where you're given all of the information you need to solve it. You're given all of the clues. You're, you know, when the reveal is kind of is unveiled, your reaction should be, of course, you know, of course that was the case. I should have realised all the pieces were there in front of me and I just failed to put that together. Um, now, crime readers are very sophisticated. They're very good at getting twists. It's not going to be possible to fool everybody all of the time. But that's what I, that's what I aim for. And in order to do that, I have to have all of those pieces and know all of the clues in order to kind of to seed them through the book. So I hope that people don't get to the end of my books and think, huh, where did that come from? Because as a reader, I don't enjoy that. I want to feel that, you know, it, it was there in front of me. Um, but I write to satisfy my own curiosity about my characters and my situations. So I don't outline exhaustively. I want to see how events unfold. And the reason I write is to find out what's going to happen to them. So I kind of feel like if I exhaustively plotted beforehand, I would have answered my own question and therefore would have no reason to write the actual book, apart from, you know, my editors and publishers breathing down my necks. But, you know, I, I want to be as interested in the story as, as they are. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I don't, I don't kind of sit down and plot out the reveals and I don't, usually have a twist in my head if it comes it comes organically um yeah I just keep it all in my head and I don't make notes how about you <laughs> yeah it's like I make a lot of notes because I I don't um I don't know who did it at the start and for me I like not knowing because I feel like I need to write my way into a story to figure out who my characters are. I have a hard time seeing things from the start. So I like to dive in and kind of get to know who the characters are, what their relationships are like. And I feel like I can connect to their uncertainty that way. Like if they're, I'm suspicious of everyone because my main character is suspicious of everyone as well. Um, but I, I wish I could see it all up front. Um, but I, I take a lot of notes as I'm writing because I feel like I, I like you, I don't do a lot of upfront plotting but I need to keep everything organized. Otherwise, everything kind of scatters on me. 
Well, I'm reading The Girl from Widow Hills at the moment, and I am suspicious of everyone. So you're doing a great job. I'm fully prepared to believe that it's, you know, they all did it and, and ganged up together. So. Oh, thank you. So um, I'm going to start with the audience questions very soon. I'm just going to ask you one more kind of a, a fun question because your, reader, your, your books have given readers a healthy distrust of cruise ships, smart houses, <laughs> ski holidays, and more. So are there any phobias of your own or books or movies that truly scare you? Are you a thriller writer who is afraid of things or a thriller writer who is, is not? I'm very afraid of things. I'm a big scaredy cat. Um, most of my books are to some extent an exploration of my own phobias. Um, I do not have a phobia of cruise ships. I've never been on a cruise, but that's not why. Um, and I love skiing. Um, so people keep tweeting me and facebooking me and saying i'm never going skiing and i feel like saying no that was not the point of the book the point of the book was do not go on corporate retreats with wonderful people definitely go skiing because it's wonderful and it's great exercise and the alps are probably literally my favorite place to be because they're so so beautiful um so i kind of feel a bit sad that i didn't convey the enjoyment of skiing in the book um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm very scared of lots of stuff. And actually, I resisted reading Stephen King until really recently. I'd read his on writing, which is yeah. amazing. And so I highly recommend to anybody who hasn't. Um, but I'd never read any of his kind of really scary stuff because I thought it would be too terrifying. And actually, I plucked up my courage last year and read The Shining and Dolores Claiborne, uh, which was scary, but not too, too scary. I did survive the experience. Um, I think probably I don't like reading like really kind of I don't like reading distressing books like mm -hmm. I really don't enjoy books about you know little girls being kept in basements by you know horrible men and stuff I just I don't want to put myself through that but I do in, I enjoy being scared in a good way and the book that scared me most was probably The Haunting of Hill House uh, by Shirley Jackson I found that terrifying even though I don't believe in ghosts so <laughs> yes no, I, I agree and I can read books but I can't watch the movies without knowing everything that's going to happen otherwise oh, really? do you google the synopsis on beforehand <laughs> I ask, like I wait until somebody I know has seen it and then ask them to give me a complete rundown of everything that has happened and then I'm happy to watch it but I just that tension of like waiting for uh, yeah yeah I know I, I I do occasionally do that if a book is too too scary and I'm really I'm just not sure if I want to put myself through the final pages I will google the synopsis and I have no shame about that and I think if other people do that they, that's fine they should feel yeah. able to do that <laughs> well I just want to also say that I have never skied before and your book made me want to go skiing it did because I also felt like I, I am now completely convinced in my mind that I know how to ski after reading this. I was like, oh, yes. I And so I'm actually quite looking forward to it. It didn't scare me off skiing, but, yeah. you know, the avalanche. That's like me when I watch subtitled films. You know, I watch Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and come away convinced that I know how to speak Chinese. <laughs> and then I look away from the subtitles and I'm like, oh, I actually don't. So. <laughs> but no, skiing is great. It's very easy. It's not that easy. It's quite easy. But um, if I can do it, anybody can. So. 
Well, I'm excited to one day ski now. Um, so I'm going to jump in with some of the audience questions. Let me just scroll back a little bit. So Anissa had asked if you had plotted your entire novel beforehand or it came to as you write. So I think we kind of touched on that. Thank you for that question. Um, Phyllis asks, what are you working on now? Can you share any of it? Well, so normally I would be handing in a book by now. Um, my general kind of year goes that I hand in a book in the summer. I edit it over the summer holidays and over the autumn. And then I start writing again in about January. Um, and this year that has not happened for a variety of reasons, but mostly because I was homeschooling my kids, which turned out to be a lot harder than anybody had prepared me for. And I have much greater respect for teachers. I had a lot of respect for teachers before this all happened, but now I think frankly, they all deserve pay rises and sainthoods. Uh, so I have ideas rattling in the back of my head for the first time in a very long time. I just had no creativity at all over lockdown. And I'm starting to think about the shape that book might be, but it's too early to talk about it. So I'm going to turn it, I, I'm going to put it over to you, Megan, and say you answer so I don't have to. <laughs> I completely relate to, to everything you were saying as well. I think, I think our kids are around the same age and, you know, it was very different. I feel like I, I kind of had a hard time focusing on, on creative pursuits for a long time, but I was actually pretty far into a draft. So, um, it's always easier to keep going, isn't it? With something, it's that kind well, there of. There's definitely a, a break, but I don't. You know, I finished it just recently, but I am still editing it. Um, and it's, it's. I'll say right now because I'm still editing it is that it is set in a. It focuses on a very intense dynamic between two women who were roommates, and it's set in a small neighborhood where a crime had occurred. Um, so it did, it did actually feel a little bit like becoming a little more locked in because it had that neighborhood feel, which I kind of could use a little bit as I was writing. I could kind of channel that a little bit, but I'm excited for your new one. I love the beginning phase when the ideas are starting to take shape. Yeah, it's the kind of the honeymoon phase where it could, you know, it could still be your magnum opus and the best yeah. thing you've ever written. <laughs> okay, so um, Pam is asking, not being someone who knows music, I'm wondering if the groups talked about by the characters in the book or referenced in the book are in fact real groups or performers. I was wondering that as well. They're all real. Yes, every single song title or artist referenced is real. Um, it's just Snoop that doesn't exist. But I am also not really a music person. So actually that was one, alongside trying to learn kind of startup culture from scratch, um, that was one of the harder bits of the book was I knew what like someone my age would listen to. Um, but like, you know, many people, my kind of musical taste froze in my sort of early twenties. Um, and I just haven't kept up with what younger people are listening to and my kids aren't really old enough to to sort of advise me so I shamelessly leaned on a lot of friends who have kind of 20 somethings and older teens and got lots of advice um, and did lots of Spotify kind of searching for the sorts of things that I thought people might listen to so yeah that was 
that was tough. Um, the book doesn't necessarily reflect my own musical taste. It was about sort of trying to think what would these people listen to. Um, but yeah, they're all real. So you can, you know, create a Spotify playlist based on <laughs> my characters. <laughs> awesome. So Anne is asking if you can talk about your formative years, kind of where you grew up, um, your schooling, and when you realized that you would like to be a writer. Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? I always, yeah, I think I always knew I wanted to be, but I'm not sure I ever really thought I that people like me were allowed to be writers. I guess I sort of thought they were grander or more important somehow. Um, so I was always a storyteller right from when I was tiny, even before I could write, I was telling stories to, you know, my sister about our toys and our teddies and stuff. Um, and then as I got older and older, the stories got longer. I started to write them down. They turned into kind of novel length things. Um, but I remember having a conversation with my mum when I was about probably about, I don't know, like six or seven or something. And we were doing the whole, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up thing? And I said, well, I, th I think I'd like to be a writer. And my mum said, which is just like super pragmatic, but not like, you know, nowadays I feel like we're all, yeah, you can be whatever you want kind of thing. And she said, well, I think that would be lovely, but I think you might find quite a lot of other people might want to be writers too, and it might be quite hard. So maybe it would be a good idea to have a plan B in case being a writer doesn't work out. So I thought for a bit and I said, okay, I think if I can't be a writer, um, do you think it's a job writing the blurbs on the back of books? And my mum said, yeah, I guess somebody must have to do that. And I said, okay, well, if I can't be a writer, I would like to write the descriptions on the backs of books. So, but I think having a plan B is really solid advice and I didn't give up my day job for a really long time I had two New York Times bestsellers and a film deal before I plucked up the courage to resign from my day job and even then my plan B has always been that if the books don't work out I'm going to go and become an accountant for writers because I feel like the thing that we all hate is doing our taxes and I'm quite good with a spreadsheet so I think I would be good at that that's awesome. I will definitely be calling you up for that. Yes. <laughs> um, so this is from Elizabeth. Ruth, I really like the setting of your books as well. When the group went skiing, Erin evaluated their skill level. What skill level would Erin have given you as a skier? <laughs> I love that. I would say I am a competent skier, but I don't have much flair. I'm very happy. Basically, I've got to the age now where I just don't want to break a leg. So I ski very safely within my skill level. Um, I like just, you know, swooshing down nice blue. We in Europe, we have four levels of ski runs. We have green, blue, red and black. Um, and I think in America, you don't have red. Uh, so I like going down blues and greens with the occasional red just to you know feel like I'm challenging myself nice parallel turns not going too fast um and the rest of my family are complete opposites they want to do the black runs and um the book is actually dedicated so there's a very scary ski run at the end of the book which is kind of semi-off-piste and that is based on a real ski run which um a group of friends took me down without telling me what it was going to be like and the actual ski run wasn't too bad but because there had been so much snow we couldn't access it in the normal way it's kind of off-piste and you had to go through this sort of cave bit 
um, and we couldn't get through because there had been too much snow. So we had to ski down the a mountainside in fresh snow, which I am not good at. I just I don't do off piece skiing. I don't enjoy it. And um, they got me to the other end in one piece. So the book is dedicated to them for having taken me down the scary ski run and not let me die in the attempt. So. <laughs> oh, that sounds terrifying though I was you know when you watch a show sometimes and you're like leaning to help the characters get out of the way I felt like that when I was reading some of the ski scenes too I was like turn veer <laughs> love it um okay so this is from Audra out of the novels you have written which book was the most fun to write and why Oh, it's a good question. Um, I would say probably the one that was the purest fun was probably In a Dark Dark Wood because I wrote it completely without expectation just because I had an idea that I really wanted to explore and I just, I couldn't bear not to write it. Um, and so I just wrote it for myself and had no, you know, expectation of it being published or doing particularly well. Um, the book that was the hardest to write was the follow-up, which is The Woman in Cabin 10, which was the very difficult second novel. And I think it was difficult because In a Dark Dark Wood exceeded my expectations a million times over in terms of how well it did. And every time it got a new, you know, foreign rights deal or a film deal or hit another bestseller list, I felt worse and worse about this book that I was writing <laughs> and sort of kept thinking, oh, you know, I have to show that I'm not a one trick pony and that I can write another book that's gripping and suspenseful. So I threw everything at that book. Um, but I think since in a dark dark wood probably one by one was the book that I had the most fun with just in terms of like I loved the characters I loved creating Snoop I feel like I had a lot of fun with that so yeah it would probably be a split between one by one and in a dark dark wood awesome so this is from Anissa our okay so you hinted at this any books being made into movies or tv series Sure. Most of my books have been optioned uh, or had the rights bought. Um, none of them have yet started filming. Um, but I feel like in the new coronavirus reality that we're all inhabiting, locked room mysteries are the way for studios to go because they can just get all of the actors on site, COVID test them, and then they're away. They don't have to have anyone else introduced. So, you know, if there's any Hollywood producers watching this, I think this is a sound business strategy and you should be optioning all of our locked room mysteries and putting them into <laughs> production. Totally agree. Yes, definitely. <laughs> So this is from Erin. What was the transition from YA fantasy to wonderful thrillers like for you? Yeah, so I wrote I wrote YA for anybody who doesn't know before I turned to crime. Um, it was kind of, in one sense, a no-brainer and in another sense, incredibly terrifying. So I, yeah, I'd written five YA novels and I didn't have an idea for a new one, except for I, I knew I didn't want to write something in the same vein again. I'd written five books about witches and I thought I want to do something different. And then I had this idea for a book about a thriller set on a hen night. And there was no way that could be a YA book. You know, it was transparently about 20 somethings because teenagers don't get married very often. Um, and I just, I, 
I just couldn't bear to let this novel go. I knew I wanted to write it. I knew it was a good idea. And so I went to my agent and said, I think I want to write an adult novel. And to her credit, she kind of just rolled with the punches and said, sure, you know, you do what you've got to do. Um, publishing it was terrifying. It felt like being a debut novelist all over again. Um, and I had a dream the night before it came out that um, my publicist sent it out and people on Twitter just hated it. And they were tweeting me saying, you know, this is the worst book I've ever read and I can't believe I paid £12 for this book. And um, my publicist said to me that research had shown that uh, the best way to deal with negative consumer experiences was a personal apology. What? So she, in my dream, this was, she made me search Ruth Ware hate and Ruth Ware terrible and Ruth Ware worst novel ever and then apologise to each of the tweeters uh, and yeah fortunately that that didn't happen and she didn't make me do that but that shows how kind of scared I was but you have written in both genres haven't you Megan what was your did, did you have such a traumatic switch <laughs> <laughs> I did not have that dream exactly but there are, I definitely I say in the lead up to publication I do have a lot of wild publishing dreams where also you wake up and you're like is that did that really happen? Is that something I... Oh, thank God. It wasn't real. It wasn't yeah. real. <laughs> um, but very much similar to you, I think, you know, it felt like a little bit like debuting again, where you're like, I don't, you know, I, I wonder how this will be received. And um, I was writing suspense to begin with in YA. So it, it felt like the same type of story I was writing, but it, it definitely, it was something I was kind of writing on the side for a long time and nobody knew I was doing it. It wasn't under contract. It was just this idea that kept calling to me and pulling to me. Um, and I just kept going back to it. Like it was, it was speaking to me. So yeah, yeah it's, yeah, definitely agree with I that. I do miss, one thing I do miss about writing YA, apart from the kids who are amazing, um, is I miss writing romance and there's not a lot of room for romance in my novels. But one thing I always enjoy about yours, Megan, is that you're very good at getting kind of, you know, there's always a hunky bloke in there. <laughs> but quite often like someone who's very desirable and is having a bit of a thing with the main character so I, think I must do that in my next book but I haven't managed to <laughs> oh thank you um so this is from Caroline this is a great question what novelist would both of you recommend for readers who like your books Ooh, um I think Lisa Jewell uh Riley Sager um Megan and I have quite a lot in common, but that's a kind of no-brainer to say. If you, um, yeah, I would say either of those are quite similar to my style. What, what about you, Megan? Yeah, I would agree. I think um, Wendy Walker, she has a new book coming out as well. And I, I really love her books and they dig into the psychological angle of characters as well. Um, yeah, I was going to also say Lisa Jewell and Riley Sager as well. Definitely. Yeah. Um, okay. Are you, so speaking of movies, television, are you involved in any of the upcoming adaptations? This is from Kelsey. I am not, no. Um, some of the producers have asked me if I would like to get involved with writing the screenplay, but I feel like I know how to write a novel because I grew up reading novels voraciously. You know, I probably, I don't know how many I've read, probably a million maybe not. Um, 
but I have no idea how to write a screenplay. I would have to go back to scratch. I like, I know how to, I know how a film works, but that's not the same as a screenplay. You know, the idea of showing how things pan out and the dialogue and stuff. Like, I don't even know how long a screenplay would have to be <laughs> to fill a three hour movie. Like, would that be a hundred pages, 300 pages? I've no idea. So I would rather spend my time writing novels than mm. figuring out a whole new craft that I might not be very good at. But I would quite, if any of them get made, I would be quite happy if I had a, a cameo. I'd quite Definitely. enjoy that. Just like me wandering through a cafe scene or something. <laughs> or skiing, skiing down. Yeah, skiing past, looking <laughs> elegant. No, I would not be looking elegant. That would be the problem. <laughs> okay, so this is from Ava. Ruth, what is your favorite, where is your favorite place to write? And do you ever miss your characters after you finish writing? I love that question. Oh, I love that question too. Um, my favorite place to write is probably in bed, which was where I wrote most of my first novels. Um, but unfortunately, turns out writing in bed is really bad for your back. Who knew? <laughs> so after I had a series of back problems, I went to my GP and he was like, tell me about your desk setup. And I was like, hmm, and I could sort of already feel the penny dropping. Um, so now I write in my office at my desk. I have a proper adjustable office chair I have my monitor at the right height I have a proper keyboard I don't type on a laptop they're incredibly bad for you um yeah I try to treat it like a job which it is um and to have a a setup that reflects the fact that I spend six hours a day doing this so I can't afford to you know to screw up my back any any more than it already is um so I guess, yeah, I would have to say now my favourite place is at my desk because that's where I do it. And I deliberately only have my work in progress on my desktop computer. So I cannot write anywhere else, only in my office. Smart. Yeah, which is quite hardcore, but it, it does, it forces me to kind of leave it behind at the end of the day, which is quite nice. I don't sort of have the temptation to, to log in. Um, and there was another half to the question. Which yes, do you ever miss your characters when you're done with the book? I do, I do, but I've never, people often ask me if I'm going to write sequels and I don't have the urge to go back to them in fiction, mm -hmm. but I do think about them a lot. I wonder if they're okay and what they're doing. How about you, Megan? Do, what, I feel exactly go back to I yes just like you were saying I feel exactly the same where there are certain books and characters and I think it's the books that probably took me the longest to write um that they just linger with me and I find myself thinking about them but like just like you I've not thought about writing a sequel to them and I think it's also like as thriller writers we're putting these characters through these really terrifying <laughs> Yeah, and at the end you're like, okay, we've made it through. We 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 got there. And so the idea of putting them through a sequel, I know I would have to make terrible things happen to them again. So I like to imagine that they're happy. That's yeah. <laughs> same. Yeah, very much so. So this is like another great question from Danielle who asks, do you have any tips for people who are interested in beginning to write novels in general? Oh my goodness. <clears throat> Well, if I had a surefire formula, I would probably market that and stop writing novels. Uh, no, that's not true. I would not. Um, I think it's really helpful to have an idea of an ending before you start, because I think a lot of people, when they begin a novel, 
it kind of just peters out or they write themselves into a dead end or they just can't figure out what happens to the characters and at least when you're beginning having a definite ending that you're aiming for it just kind of gives you something to shoot for and it gives you something that when you've got to it you can say that's it it's done you know it kind of it, it's a sort of I'm not a great one for plotting everything out but I do think that having a sort of target in mind helps keep you on track um, the first time that you're doing it um, I think it never hurts to give your readers a reason to turn the page um, a question that they're interested in answering and that goes for you as a writer like you know like we were discussing earlier I write to fulfill my own curiosity to find out stuff and I think if you can drop something in on the first page that you're curious about a dynamic that's a bit off or someone acting slightly strange or saying something that you know there's a brilliant example um in the first chapter of Gone Girl where um the narrator is chatting away to the police he's being interviewed about the disappearance of his wife and there's a lot of things that you immediately want to find out like is she alive what's happened to her is he responsible and then on the final like almost as a throwaway line he says that was the fourth lie i told also i may have got the number wrong and you're like holy he's told four lies to the police which ones were they what out of this statement that he said is untrue and it just of course you have to turn the page there because you have to find out what it is that he said out of this very innocuous statement was for you know how many lies so I think that's hard to do when you start out, but giving yourself little reasons to sort of to continue and try to find stuff out is never a bad thing. Do you, what do you have any tips, Megan? What would yours be? Yeah, well, kind of like you were saying, first of all, I totally remember that line from Gone Girl because I remember that feeling. Like it's such this moment where you're like, what? I, he's not trustworthy, what? And you go back to figure out what it might be. Yeah. Like what you were saying, I think about that as, tension um and not just in in thrilling in thrillers or suspense but that there's all these different elements of tension that you can kind of tap into so not necessarily the big external plot but tension between character dynamic and tension between like your internal tension and decision making and there's tension when a character doesn't know the answer to something so really trying to find those moments of tension in anything i i, I totally agree with you there um, my other piece of advice would just really be to kind of embrace the things that make you unique and what you're interested in and what you really are interested in learning more about because you know i think those are the things that really make your story unique but also you spend so much time with a story that are, you know to love it and to love what you're writing and learning about is something that helps me keep going every day in the parts that really get hard um so there was a question actually that follows that up a little, Ruth, is that do any of your books besides the C example contain examples or references to your own life? Um, I mean, none of my books are in any way autobiographical, like, well, fortunately, <laughs> terrible things happen to my characters. None of them have happened to me. Um, <clears throat> but definitely all of my characters are to some extent me, even the horrible ones. So, you know, very often they'll contain elements of stuff that I've done or thought or so like to use one by one as an example Erin is a chalet hostess which I've never been but I have been a waitress and I think I was a pretty good waitress actually and I know what it's like to work in the service industry and to be in that sort of weird 
position of being on paper kind of subservient to people because you're there to make stuff comfortable for them and do what they say but actually in practice being the person who's in charge and that is a sort of very strange dynamic um and liz the other narrator i've also been a pa which is her role and i know what that's like as well i know you know the how difficult it can be to work for you know very demanding situations and to be having to suck up blame for stuff that isn't necessarily within your power to affect um but also liz has my social anxiety like i'm a lot more confident now than i used to be but you know she has I spent years kind of walking into rooms and not feeling dressed right or not feeling you know posh enough to be there or feeling like I wasn't fitting in and so all of that is kind of in Liz but magnified um so yeah I guess all of it all of them are me to an extent uh, but fortunately I have never been involved in a murder and long may that continue so <laughs> That was Megan Miranda in conversation with Ruth Ware at the National Writers Series from September 2020. Don't forget to sign up to join us for free to hear from Megan Miranda again. She will be in conversation with guest host Riley Sager. They'll be talking about her newest book, Such a Quiet Place, and we'll probably also talk about Riley's book too. It's called Survive the Night, and it is on the New York Times bestseller list right now. So thank you for joining us. This has been another episode of the National Writers Series podcast. If there's anything you want to hear, uh, shoot me an email. I'm at carl at nwstc.org. That's carl with a K, K-A-R-L at nwstc.org. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us.